Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about reframing the conversation. That's the climate conversation, of course. This is the Climate Hour. And the conversation is about global warming. You know, I used to start these broadcasts by reminding people that greenhouse gas emissions cause global warming, which creates climate changes that cause weather disasters. And you and I are living the weather disasters every day. New heat records year after year, summer-like temperatures in February, blizzards, floods, droughts. Yet, when was the last time you talked about climate issues with a friend or family member? Studies consistently find that the majority of people concerned, they are concerned about climate, but very, very few talk about it. Why has something as universal as the climate crisis become such a political football that it's a forbidden topic at family holiday gatherings? Scientists have been publishing papers on global warming since the 1950s. In the 80s, global warming entered the mainstream with congressional hearings, front page articles, all of that. It became an issue, and those that profited from the status quo started looking for ways to deny global warming. You really couldn't deny the science, but you could reframe it as a natural phenomenon that we couldn't do anything about, or as something that needed more research before we could act. In 2002, a prominent Republican pollster circulated a strategy guide advising his candidates to talk about climate change instead of global warming. His research found that the concept of climate change was less threatening. Global warming was a crisis. Climate change was like taking a ski trip. He effectively created a talking point that de-escalated and delayed climate action for over 20 years. So words do matter. Words can inspire hope and action, or they can discourage and silence our voices. How do we find that balance between inspiring hope and addressing the urgency of a situation? How do we reframe the conversation? We're joined today on Zoom by Adam Ratner, Director of Conservation Engagement at the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, California. Hi, Adam. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited for this conversation. Hannah Phillips, Manager of Docents and Interpreters at the Education Department of the St. Louis Zoo. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Bob. Nice to see you. Kate Bergenthal, President and Project Coordinator of the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation. Hi, Kate. Hi, Bob. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having us. And Dr. Megan Innes, Assistant Curator of Museum Education and Director of the Thompson Earth Systems Institute at the Florida Museum of Natural History. Hi, Megan. Hi, Bob. Happy to be here today. I'd like to start today by just going around the room and asking each of you why language is important. Why do we need to reframe the conversation? And I'm sure that I use a lot of trigger words in my opening, so feel free to use me as a bad example if you want. <laughs> Hey, how do why why is why is conversation important? Why do we need to reframe this conversation? That's a great question. Uh, realistically, the way we currently talk about climate change can feel very isolating. Um, it's a lot of well, you did this or you're not doing this to help us. And realistically, we realize that it's our job to inspire hope. It's our job to be able to push forward conversation and not lead people into crisis. People tend to shy away from crisis. We all know the story of Chicken Little. Um, so it's just really important for us to be able to communicate in a way that uh, encourages conversation rather than shuts it down. Absolutely. Megan, why do you think we need the conversation? Why do we reframe it? Yes. Yeah, so we all come into conversations with an idea and an understanding about how the world works. And by having uh, ways of talking about climate change that help us to have more productive conversations with a wider range of people can really help to encourage us all to have more conversations because it reduces the stress and anxiety of trying to bring up this topic with folks that you may not know 
or may not know how they will respond. And so having just really great strategies for having effective conversations makes us feel more confident to have the conversations. And the research shows the more we talk about climate change, the more people are willing to talk about climate change. I agree. Hannah, why do you think we need to reframe the conversation? (laughs) Well, I echo both Kate and Megan. Um, It's important that we normalize that it's okay to care for the planet. And the way we do that is by talking to each other about it and finding out what everybody also cares about. It is a little bit of a mistake that we all make, particularly with people we work with or who we know very well, that we assume they care about the same things we do. Um, And I've had that experience with a family member who shocked me uh, one day and I thought, oh, I have training for this. And we had a lovely conversation and uh, using the framing techniques that we use in Noki to have these conversations. And it just, we left it, we both felt good. And he left going, huh, all right. And, you know, I'll take that. Um, Because again, we're here to normalize that this is an okay and normal thing. Other people are concerned. We're all in this together. So let's figure out how we can work together to make a difference. Adam, reframing the conversation. I think building off what Hannah just shared, silence is the death for any idea. Um, And we know that people care about climate change. Poll after poll are showing the vast majority of people across the United States and across the world care about this. But so few people are talking about it that most people don't realize that they've got this whole community of people around them that care the same way they do about climate because they just don't hear about it enough. Adam, I've heard you use the phrase spiral of silence. That's such a great phrase. A spiral of silence creating a false perception that people don't care about climate change. Talk more about that. So this was something that the Yale Program for Climate Communication um, identified a few years back, which is that just a lot of people aren't hearing about climate change and they're not talking about it. So in the U.S., two thirds of people rarely or never talk about climate change with their family and friends. So you think about well, how much do you know if your family cares about this? Maybe you're not willing to bring it into the conversation because maybe it is that political football or that polarizing topic and just not a fun conversation to have around the kitchen table. Um, You then think about it from a media perspective and you've got only around 50% of people in the US hear about climate change in the news once a month or more. So there is this spiral of silence where people just aren't hearing about the issue And if you're not hearing about it, it can fall down that ladder of needs. There's a lot of things to focus on these days. So if we can really change that narrative, we bring it forward and let people know that this is an issue of importance. It's normal to care about it. It's normal maybe to worry about it a little bit, but everyone's on your team. So let's work together. Let's figure out a way to address it. Kate, how important is hope in moving moving people towards action? Hope. So without hope uh, or understanding, we don't tend to act on anything. Um, If we think that something is a fruitless endeavor, we're typically going to abandon that endeavor. If you allow people to be able to see themselves in the story of climate change and about how it might be affecting them or the people and places they care about, um, that gives them a sense of autonomy and the ability to act on this. Um, And they're not going to act if they don't have that hope. Uh, We see time and time again in in all kinds of ways that if we just kind of say, 
and we I guess you can't see that uh, if we just you know <laughs> throw our hands up and say that you know we don't want to try um then that doesn't inspire hope in somebody else and realistically we have to be our own network of support we have to like adam said you know we we have to make sure that we're talking about it and letting other people know that we care by talking about it the more we self silence the the less gets done so that spiral of silence that um the lack of hope. So I, I understand that the, the inspiration of hope and all those things to engage us. Um, how do we get people to see themselves as part of the solution? Uh, Kate, continuing with you. I mean, we can give them a hope, but then how do we engage them? How do we reframe this so they see themselves as part of the solution? I think what's important here is to have people first see how I don't want to say they're part of the problem, but how they've been built into a society that is causing issue. How you know they're they're points in their life where they might be having discussions that may seem very much like it's a problem outside of me. It's something that's happening um, somewhere else. It's something that's happening to someone else. Uh, but if you can provide people the ability to see how these things are affecting them, how, you know, everything from beer production to sea level rise to, you know, you were talking about storms and uh, the amount of the frequency we're seeing of certain types of storms. We don't know what's going to meet someone at at where they are. We're, we're not sure what's going to necessarily resonate with someone that we are meeting on the street. But if we can find that middle point um, of where it's something that they care about and we can discuss how climate change is affecting whatever it is that they care about, then it gives them the sense of, okay, well, something I care about is affected. Then you have to move forward to the, the solution. You don't want to just give someone a problem. You don't want to leave them saying, okay, well, you know, that's not going to work out. Uh have a good day. If you don't give them some sense of what they can do to act and um, how they can seek a solution, it's the same thing as not providing hope. It doesn't give them a sense of ability to, to move past the fear. So I hear you say finding a way to get them to personally identify with the problem and then provide them a solution for that. Just don't leave them with the problem. 100% or a suite of solutions. It's, you know, obviously there's no one size fits all with this. Uh, so being able Absolutely. to provide people with different ways they can interact with uh, the issues is is important. Megan, uh, can you talk about framing strategy? What is that? How does that bring about change? So framing has been used in a lot of different fields from sociology and media and education. It's used in a lot of different fields. And really, it just helps us to organize the conversation that we're having with someone so that we hit the highlights that we need to focus on and make sure we're helping our listener get from where we're starting to where we're hoping to go. And so in this case, we're starting with our value and why do we care about this issue that we are all part of this planet and climate change is again, impacting the people, places, and things that we love. So how can we connect the person we're talking with to this larger issue? And then we have to make sure they understand what it is we're talking about. So we call those an explanatory chain. And basically, it helps to get us from point A to point B without dropping somebody off in the middle and making them leap to conclusions, trying to understand what it is we're trying to explain. And to make that a little easier, we use some we use a metaphor to make it Sticky and take these really complex ideas. Climate change is complex. The, the impact, the how the processes are working in different places, it's a very complex issue. And so using metaphors allows us to help people to understand 
understand the broad concept and remember them. And that explanatory chain then gets us to those solutions that Kate was talking about. And what we have found in our research over a decade of research is that those solutions need to be at the community level. For a long time, we've talked about turn off your light bulbs when you leave the room. But that makes me think, well, if I'm the only person turning off the light bulb, that's not going to make a difference. So by bringing folks into a community level solution, so actions that we are taking together in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our cities, however you want to define your community, by identifying those actions that are already taking place, it helps the person you're talking to understand that they are part of something bigger and they are working with others to make meaningful change. And that again, brings in the hope. And one of the most exciting things we found about this is climate change is heavy. It can be really hard to talk about. And that may be part of why people don't wanna have the conversations is because it is heavy and sad and scary. But when you use these framing strategies and you finish with those actions that we are coming together to do together, it not only helps your listener, your learner, the person you're talking with, it not only helps them to feel hopeful and like that they have the ability to make change, it helps you to feel more hopeful and remember that you are part of this movement of people that are doing wonderful things for the planet. And so that hope piece is not just for the person we're trying to talk to, but also for those of us who are having these conversations as well. It's fascinating to see how these conversations can act like a buoying point. Um, there's always this fear that you talk to someone and what if they put their hackles up? Um, but, you know, speaking for with the other people in the room, I can pretty assuredly say, since we come from the same organization, that there's a light bulb moment you can watch people have when you're able to connect, uh, again, these people in places, things they care about to climate change. Um, and not only is it a moment of, aha, I understand what's going on and what's at stake here, but you can also see this moment of almost excitement with a lot of people where it's a, I've been waiting for someone to talk with me about this. And finally, I have the opportunity to do it. And they're not going to shut down what I have to say. They're going to answer my questions. And it the dialogue opening up is is like a magical moment to, to Megan's point. It's um, you know, you you can see where someone has that that reaction and it just it feels like it just hope breeds hope, right? And anecdotally can confirm all of this as someone who works with just the general population, people coming to visit the zoo and having lots of conversations and training our staff and volunteers to have these conversations. I can count on the, on one hand between me and a couple of colleagues who talk a lot with our guests, three, maybe four weird conversations that we had with folks that were just like really weird. Um, otherwise, we had one of our volunteers went out and she was really nervous to have the conversation and she was at Cheetahs and like, how are we going to do this? And she did. And two different mom groups came back to her and said, thank you so much for talking in this nice way. It's the nicest we've ever heard it explained to us. She was so excited when she came back. And so now I hope she's <laughs> having all the conversation. But um, it's exactly right. Hope breeds hope. And particularly for those of us working in the environmental field, which can feel really, really sad a lot of the time. Um, it really, it helps lift me and I'd say us up as well when we have these good conversations, even with this, if it's with someone who doesn't, isn't quite there, um, like the weird family member I had, we had a nice interaction. And I think the goal is always to get the person to come back 
or go off and, and look at something. And what I, what I tell a lot of people when I train is that we're not looking to change minds or convince people or start an argument. We're just looking for the, huh, that's the learning moment where they just go, huh. And sometimes it's a really tiny thing. You don't have to have this huge major conversation, but if they've felt good about it, and go, huh, then they're more likely to look up more information, go find another person to talk to, come back and talk to you. And that's really what we want is to continue the conversation and build that competence and confidence in engaging with the topic. So Hannah, let's dig into that a little deeper. I mean, you're the manager of docents and interpreters at St. Louis, so you deal with us all the time. How do you, I mean, what are the specific ways you interpret a sensitive concept so that it sparks curiosity instead of arguments? Are there techniques you use? There are. And a lot of this comes out of the Noki network and the training we provide. And there's a whole system and, and program that we provide. The general public folks can sign up for those trainings on our website, um, noki.org, N-N-O-C-C-I.org. At any rate, um, the biggest thing to keep in mind is keeping a neutral tone of voice, much like what we're doing here. We're not doing the chicken little the sky is falling crisis. I'm a kid of the 80s and the Save the Rainforest campaign, and it was very, very scary as a third grader. <laughs> um, and a lot of people we know just shut down. It's too much. It's too big. It's too far away. The human mind is not good at thinking at the global scale. Systems, systems first of all, and then at the global scale is really difficult for the human mind. And so, again, keeping it that reasonable start to finish because of this thing. This is what's happening. This is why it matters. These are the impacts. Here's what you can do about it. That complete story. So much of what we hear in the news is the impact of climate change, never so much the cause or they say greenhouse gases, but that's like, where do they come from? And when you give people the very simple entry-level door concrete example of um, how they are, we, I should say, we <laughs> are producing um, heat trapping gases just to power our regular everyday lives. People go to solutions on their own because they finally understand the cause and effect. And so much of that is missing out of our conversation. And if you can do that in a way that keeps people engaged, um, you can make a, a huge difference. I think that's such an important part, Hannah, and, and builds off of what we've heard from a few different folks. So Katie and Megan talked about connecting the dots here and letting people see themselves in it. We've done a lot of different studies across zoos, aquariums, museums that highlight that the spiral of silence in this issue isn't just for individuals, it's also for communicators that we at these organizations sometimes feel like maybe this is a tricky topic, so we self-silence ourselves. But We've seen that around 75% of visitors to informal science centers want recommendations on climate change. They're, they're yearning for this information um, and we're actually not giving it to them as much as they want. So it's not as much we being on our soapboxes to share out different solutions. Um, it's helping connect the dots for people so that they realize here's, here's how climate change is happening and start to illuminate some of those ideas, and then they can start to find those solutions themselves, or they can learn what those organizations are doing. And that's what breeds that reinforcement that we can actually act on this issue. It's not too overwhelming. It's not too isolating. Um, so that's just one way that we can meet the audience where they're at. It's not as much of a battle as I think a lot of people have a psychological barrier set in mind. I think in general, it's to Adam's point, it's we have to remember that 
our goal is to speak with people, not at them. Um, so often the climate change conversation is one that feels somewhat browbeating. And to to Hannah's point, yeah, it it's not an easy topic, but that's all the more reason that we should dig into it and not just kind of push it into the corner. Um, <clears throat> in general, we don't at our centers know, though, what everyone is coming to the table with, uh, what knowledge they already have, what knowledge they might need. Someone might need to know the difference between weather and climate before they can start to really break down uh, what what everything is. And if they have the opportunity to speak with someone that's willing and uh, excited to talk about it with them, they're going to ask these questions. It, it doesn't feel like they're being talked at. It feels like they're being allowed to engage and encouraged to engage um, in in moving forward rather than just kind of being told that they've done something wrong um, and that there is hope and there is an ability to, to talk with more people if we just are willing to do so. The goal of our, the yet another goal um, of our work is really to move the conversation away from me or you to we. It's collective. It's the only way we'll be able to make change. And people like joining stuff. So <laughs> I always love saying we didn't get into this alone and we didn't, we won't get out of it alone. Yes. Um, so, but I like <laughs> Hannah's reframe. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Uh, let's talk about um, language science a little bit. And Adam, can you talk about mental language mapping and, and what is it, number one, and how does it lead to positive, negative conversations? So you've heard a couple of examples already just through this conversation that we have various images and emotions that are tied to concepts and tied to specific words. Um, we think about this in marketing all the time of how companies are able to essentially manipulate us a little bit into buying their products. They use language that speaks to our values. They use language that pique our interests. We can do the same thing when it comes to conservation messaging and education. Um, and what's really fascinating is you can use all of the best practices of science to test language use. And that's what a bunch of groups have done, Frameworks Institute being one of them, the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation, or NOKI, as you've heard the acronym shared a few times so far, really went out and tested different um, mental maps, different concepts, different word use for the North American audience, and were able to find associations that helped people better understand the issue of climate change and be more willing to act on it. You heard Megan speak to values and how things like protection, responsible management are values that are, are universal. So it gives you an, a kind of open door to start that conversation where you're starting from a central place. Hey, these are things that we care about. We might not all agree on the tactics, of what we need to do to protect people and places from harm. Let's agree that we should take action and protect those things that we value and that we love and that we depend on. So that's where we're able to start to use the science of language to move the needle on climate action down the road, using some of those tools, the metaphors, the explanatory chains, and then building in this sense of community, this sense of hope. And that's what has been really exciting with hundreds of organizations across the United States starting to build and be unified in their language around. Speaking of uh, of wording, I, I thought it was interesting. I'd never heard about the representative in 2002 uh, suggesting that people use climate change instead of um, global warming. Because realistically, in the work we do, we suggest people use climate change because it gives a much 
greater definition about what's happening. If somebody is not experiencing warming, they're experiencing more frequent snowstorms or um, those once in a hundred years, uh, you know, rain events are coming more often. They're not necessarily focused on the warming. But if we talk about the climate changing, that's that hits home um, to more people. It, it's more relevant across the board. So it's interesting how some people may think that their word choice is getting them in one direction and, and it may be getting them in the complete opposite direction we've learned. Yeah, it raises a good question. I think I mentioned this in the introduction. I mean, obviously we want to inspire hope, but we also have to address the urgency. So we really like to talk about the community impacts and the community level places we are seeing these changes where folks can get involved. And as has already been mentioned, we really try to steer away from crisis messaging. There is a lot going on in the world right now that we are all very concerned about. And to take a crisis perspective might get folks' attention, but it could also really shut them down because they just don't have the bandwidth to focus on anything else or to worry about anything else. So a lot of the work that I do is on educators and how do we help them balance having these conversations, particularly with youth who have a lot of eco-anxiety and are dealing with a lot of issues right now. And so making sure that we do include those hopeful messages because it empowers people to know that they can be part of change. You're listening to The Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. We're speaking with Kate Bergenthal, Megan Innes, Anna Phillips, and Adam Ratner about reframing the conversation. Uh, we touched on um, the equity, the social justice issues, uh, um, Kate, and I think that that's a very important issue. Um, how do we reframe that? I mean, how do we address the, the people who are affected by climate, the social justice, the equity in, the, in, in our conversations? What a lot of people may not realize is that climate change is inherently a social justice issue. To Adam's point, um, we see disproportionate effects amongst uh, the people that are maybe putting out or the you know the groups and areas of the world that are putting out more of these heat trapping gas emissions than we are seeing maybe them seeing the effects of. An example of this is the tiny island nation of Vanuatu. Um, Vanuatu has put out a, a very small percentage of heat trapping gas emissions, and yet uh, they are facing their island being wiped out because of climate change affecting sea level rise. Uh, we also have communities here in the United States that have been redlined and put into these these areas that are experiencing more of these heat island effects. They're they're in small uh, areas and they've been um, put into very confined quarters with um, you know concrete and things that are just not allowing that heat to escape. And it, this is where we're seeing more issues with health for people that are in minoritized communities because they are the ones that are experiencing these changes most significantly at this point. What about generational differences? Um, um, Megan, you were talking a little bit about eco-anxiety and, you know, the young generations are experiencing that. And I was talking about the urgency of the situation. And, and it seems to me that maybe the older generation needs a little bit more urgency put behind them to, you know, get off the seat, whereas the younger people maybe feel it more. Is the conversation, do we adjust the conversation for different generations? That is a wonderful question. And you do touch on a number of things, such as the Pew studies that have shown our younger generations care and are taking action and are getting mobilized to do great things. And so finding ways to help 
maybe have more intergenerational actions that can be taken together. We have a lot of educators that are interested in this sort of work and just helping folks see themselves as part of the solutions will be really important. And there is some concern where youth feel like they're being left behind to deal with the mess. And so it is very important that we of all ages and all generations take action to help address this situation. And on that that point, particularly for older generations right now, there's a lot of movement and sense of urgency by them as well. And I recently um, listened to an interview with Bill McKibben, who has started uh, an, or- an environmental action climate change organization specifically to engage um, our older generation of folks the over 60, 65 set. I think it just speaks to how you have to customize the conversation to the interests of the group that you're working with. How do we make climate change locally relevant? How do we make it something tangible for people? Um, We saw this, I would say, historically with a lot of the climate change conversations being about things like polar bears in the Arctic. And it won over a lot of people. A lot of people that cared about polar bears started caring about climate change. But then you started to have that that messy middle group. where they just couldn't see the connection to polar bears. It was a distant issue away from them. They never saw it. The more we're able to start talking about some of the things Kate was mentioning, air pollution um, and the social justice issues that connect with climate change, things that you can see in your own backyard, the more likely people are going to start to be interested, want to talk about it, want to get involved. And that will be different for youth versus, um, versus adults and versus whatever generation you might be talking to in whatever demographic and geographic area they're in as well. The thing about climate change that's terrible is that it affects everything. The good thing from a communication standpoint about climate change is it affects everything. So there's no (laughs) shortage of ways to bring climate change into a conversation where people can all of a sudden start to really connect those dots to why this is something they already actually care about. They don't even need to find out it's something they care about. They just have to realize it's already connected to those things they love and value. And that's going to be what gets them farther in that conversation. We know people like, by nature, humans are social creatures. They like to join things. And there's been plenty of sociological research that points to simple messaging of saying, thanks for joining us in saving water. Leave your towels on the floor in your hotel room or something. Um, People engage with that more than if you want, you could do this so we can save water. Whereas if you just say, thanks for joining us, people already do it. So this community allows people to join things. They're not just alone swinging out in the breeze (laughs) trying to listen, everybody, Um, that there really is that that builds that sense of hope and that sense of togetherness that we're all that we that we've been been talking about. But matching the scale of the problem and that community level solutions for most of our audiences and the folks we talk to is really important. Behavior really is contagious. I mean, we've seen that with climate actions, um, whether it's things like solar panels. So we know that communities are, houses are more likely to put solar panels on their roof if their neighbors have solar panels on their roof. Um, the more visible, the more tangible these solutions are, the more they're reinforced. That's going to really drive the social norming, the desire for people to to join that that train and to, to jump in on the action. And that's really exciting as we think about how you can quickly scale actions. We just need to try and get some of those tangible actions front and center for folks so that they know that we're not waiting for science to save us. The actions are already out there. 
Um, there are steps. You're not going to be the first one to do it. You don't even need to be that brave. Others have taken that first step um, and you can learn from them and, and join a growing movement. And that's really important to make sure that we talk with the communities where we're having these conversations and find out what are the types of actions they're already taking. Because we don't want to come in and say, you have to do this thing. And it's just completely unreasonable for their communities. So um, you mentioned solar panels, Hannah. And when I was talking with somebody who works in Alaska, she said, the people I talk to are worried their houses aren't going to make it through the winter. They're not about to put a solar panel on top. And so making sure that the conversations we're having are appropriate to the communities we're talking with is really important because it may already be things they're doing and we can help bring more of their community on board by showing your community is already doing this. It's a conversation we're inviting people mm -hmm. to. We can't assume that the the same mold that works for people in Boston is the same thing that works for people in Central California is even the same thing that works for people in Miami. We all have different places we live, things that we're experiencing, and we can't assume that we have all the answers to make to fit everybody's mold. It's but say so we can engage people in the conversation and then they can be able to give us some of those that information that says this is what we're doing this is what we'd like to do and help them move forward it's it's not a matter of coming in and just saying yep this is what you do the end um you got to give people a sense of of self in the story it's the relevance piece if you want it doesn't matter what the issue environmental or otherwise if you want someone to really remember and walk away with that, you have to find something relevant to their lives or how they're thinking about something. Um, that relevance piece is key, which is really hard for the climate conversation because we all wish we just had the list, right? Do these five things. We also know from research that people love getting the list, but then they do one. <laughs> Scaffolding solutions specific to climate change we know doesn't work. People will do the one. They're not really likely to do the second thing on the list. And again, there's not a one size fits all, as Kate said at the top of the hour. Um, it's lots of people doing lots of things together. And so when I go out and talk with folks and, and share how to talk this with others, I say what you need to do is have just a couple of examples of different levels, like maybe one from this area, maybe one at the state level, maybe one example of a more national or you know, regional level that you can provide people so then they can go and look something up similar in their area. Um, but yeah, all, all my folks wanted, like, can you just give me the list of what to tell people to do? And I was like, I wish. Um, <laughs> there are things on the internet you can look up, but um, it's lots of people doing lots of things and pick your few examples to share. I've heard the idea of sticky a couple of times now. I know, Kate, you've talked about making climate science sticky so it's easier to share. What does that mean? How do you make science sticky? That is a great question. Um, of course, I can't think of an example outside of this, <laughs> but I can tell you how, how we approach things. We recognize that a lot of climate science can be very complicated sounding. Um, a lot of times people want to throw out jargon to, to add to their point, but that can just alienate somebody from the conversation if they don't know that word or, um, you know, if you throw out a statistic and they're like, I don't know how to react to this. So it might just kind of throw them off talking about it at all. Um, to Hannah's point earlier, we want to make sure that we are meeting someone, finding out maybe what that the information they don't have, and then being able to provide them that 
that um, explanatory chain that Megan was talking about. Um, we want them to walk away with a better sense of what's happening than when they came to us. And if we don't do a good job explaining the mechanisms of climate change, then we 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 fail ourselves. Um, one of the big things that we like to talk about is the heat trapping blanket. It's a very salient way to talk about what's happening. So the atmosphere is like a blanket that surrounds our earth. And when we burn fossil fuels like coal, oil, and methane gas, we add more and more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which thickens that blanket. The thicker the blanket gets, the more heat is trapped underneath. Uh, and this blanket effect leads to warming, which disrupts the climate. Obviously, the atmosphere is not like us. If we have a blanket and we get too warm, we can stick our foot out. The Earth has no feet, <laughs> so it's not going to be able to self-regulate that way. It, it's it's on us. And if you're able to quickly give somebody that information and give them the sense of, oh, okay, I can remember a blanket. I know what a blanket does. Then they can be more likely to have the same conversation with somebody else because they don't feel like they're speaking about something that they might not make may not know about. Um, they have enough information that they can feel empowered to speak with someone else because they now know some of the basic mechanisms that they may not have known coming into the conversation. And as somebody who's talked to scientists and tried to train some scientists on this, this is actually where we run. In, I run into a little bit of a barrier because they know all the things. And so the pushback I get often from scientists is like, it's more complicated than that. And I go, right. But my mom or my weird cousin or just your, you know, your aunt, whoever, your friend doesn't have a PhD in climatology or endocrinology or whatever, whatever it is and have this real sense of science. This, our job as communicators is to not just show people the door, but to open it for them. And if we're doing our job right, then we get them to step through the door. And a lot of um, what we do with our guests is just to help them on their path. Every single person in this world is on a path, and our job is just to help them one or two steps along their path. I hear you saying find a good metaphor that people can relate to, and then yes. that will stick with them. And we actually reframed that particular metaphor. If you remember in the 90s, we talked about the greenhouse effect. But what our um, collaborators found was a lot of people have never been in a greenhouse. So they don't know what that feels like. Whereas I'm fairly confident that most of the listeners to this podcast have been stuck under a blanket at some point in their life and got really hot and didn't, you know, either you have to stick your foot out or just be really uncomfortable. And so that was a metaphor that was much stickier for folks because it was much more relatable and something that they have personally experienced. Whereas something like a greenhouse might be a more um, limited opportunity for some folks. And that relevant piece that Adam was talking about earlier um, of those values, those universal values of protection and responsible management, when used specifically with climate change, uh, we reach people's heart. Um, we used to think that if people just knew who kn know how bad it is, they just know how bad it is, then they'll act. But we all know that people are like, too crazy, can't deal with it. We need to hit their heart first. Why should I care enough to listen to possibly learn something more? So the relevance piece is that concrete metaphor example that people can latch onto, but also why should I care about it? Um, Adam, I don't know if you want to say a little more about that. Well, I was just going to build off of um, what Megan had shared with 
some of the metaphor and the heat trapping blanket, it's not just that people understand how a blanket works. I think it's also that the beginning part of that metaphor you heard from Kate was the burning of fossil fuels like coal, oil, and methane gas are causing an increase in this blanket. So the metaphor alone set up the problem that allows people to start to see what the solutions might be. Um, because a lot of people might know that the world is warming, but if they don't know how it's warming, they're left to a guessing game to figure out what they can do to solve it. And they might not pick the best solution or an appropriate solution to do that. So the more within that sticky metaphor, we can link the root cause, the more we help people on that path to know what they can do about it. So Adam, tell us tell us about Noki. Um, they've been doing climate communications research for what, over a decade now? Tell us about that. So the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation, or NOKI, is a growing network that's been around for close to 15 years at this point. Um, it's a collection of scientists, of educators, journalists, other climate communicators that are using this toolkit of science-based communication techniques. So scientifically tested tools like the heat trapping blanket like these value statements around protection and responsible management. And it offers a wide range of training opportunities for folks. We've got over 800 trained members now across the United States. We're in hundreds of institutions, ranging from the biggest zoos and aquariums across the country to small nonprofits that focus on wetlands um, or wherever they might be across the country. And it's not only a chance to reach literally millions of people through these audiences with consistent, unified, tested language, but it's a community of support for the communicators as well. You've got that social, emotional support. You've got those resources you can go to if you find yourself in a sticky situation or find yourself maybe losing a little bit of hope because of some news story that you came across. You've got 800 plus people there to, to help you feel like you're not alone. Um, so it's a truly amazing support system for communicators and then a training tool for literally anyone that wants to better understand what the issue of climate change is, how to talk about it, and what we can do to solve it. And Megan, can you tell us about the long-term impacts of Noki's training and framing strategies? Absolutely. So I was the science director for Noki for a period of time. And while I was serving in that role, we conducted some research with the very first educators that went through this training in 2011, 2012. I, uh, that was Hannah and I. And we brought together folks that had gone through this over a decade ago to find out, you know, what stuck with you, what was useful, what you know, how did this impact you? And Adam brought up one of the biggest components that came out of this was the community and just how vital it was. We heard from folks that said they were some of the first people starting these conversations and they thought they were alone because their institutions were one of the only places that were talking about climate change. And all of a sudden they had a whole cohort of people that they could email or call and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you please help me? And we all came together and just created this community of folks that were willing and able to support one another and having these somewhat difficult conversations. And we found that they are still using the strategies that they learned in their training a decade later, even though many of them have left the zoos and aquariums where they work. 
that they still find themselves using the same strategies to have conversations in their everyday lives. And part of why we started in zoos and aquariums is the research shows that folks come to our organizations because they want solutions, they want to know how to make a difference, and they trust us. And the research shows um, from 2023 that zoos, aquariums, and science museums are trusted even more than they were before the pandemic started, and more than television, newspapers, and I'm sorry, Bob, even more than radio. So we are a trusted source of, um, you know, information, and that the folks who participated in these organizations, they not only took away the training we gained, but they also then went on to train all those people Adam was talking about. So that way, when they did leave their institutions, they left behind the knowledge so that this work could continue to grow. And it has just been amazing to see it grow from a very small number of people to over 800 folks in organizations all across the continent, really. It's interesting because one of the first things that we talk with people about when we they start a course with Noki is actually the emotional baggage that's involved with with climate change. And it might seem weird that we're starting a discussion about a predominantly science-based, you know, topic about something that seems very counterintuitive. Why are we talking about emotions when we're trying to talk about climate change? But hopefully we've been able to convey that a lot of people do have this fear. And so they come to us and they're looking for that hope. They want to be hopeful, but they they need that reassurance and that sense of, I am not alone. It is a we. Um, and that's one of the most beautiful things about this organization is that, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people in our industries were unfortunately laid off, but people came together from our organization to provide support and hope and help to each other. Um, and we saw something similar to that, or a very good example of that last year when we ran our first ever trainer course uh, funded by NOAA. And what we saw is that we were trying to build capacity in the Southeast United States of people that are talking about climate change. Uh, and it's it's been a year now, and we see these people talking to each other weekly still. And it's, it's really amazing to see when there was a major bleaching event uh, with the coral down there last summer, we had organizations that may not have had connections before that were bringing in corals to protect the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. And we get to see those things happen in real time and see how this network is providing hope and support for everybody involved with it. And we're really excited because we're um, this year we have new courses that are being brought to Canada. So to Megan's point, we're going to be more across the, the North American continent. Um, and the more that we can be using the same language to be talking about the same thing, the more those concepts will become sticky and the more talking about climate change can become the norm as opposed to the exception. The, the stickiness and the consistent language and messaging is key. So Adam talked about mind mapping and how we see an image and we immediately have words that we associate it. That's because we've had years and years of moving the same pathway, right? Making the same pathway in our mind. And if we want people to take action and feel good about it, we do have to create new pathways. And the only way you do that is by hearing the same thing over and over and over again. And we see from the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, their Six Americas study, where they, they mapped the climate change in the American mind and discovered people fall into one of six categories that range from sort of dismissive denier to alarmist. And the vast majority of Americans, and they've been doing this for 10 or 15 years now, almost in line with how long Noki's been around, it's been consistent that the vast majority of Americans fall into the cautious and concerned 
categories of things and they fluctuate a little bit over the years but those are the categories of like I've heard stuff but I'm not really sure and I just got to get my kids to school but I I want to do something but I just don't really know and that's where our institutions um can really come into play is we are a collective place we are safe places for most people to come and um be places of practice where we can practice having those conversations so Kate what kind of um tools, programs, classes does Noki provide the public? That's a great question. And I would say, first off, to to Hannah and Megan's point, that's always evolving. Uh, we really are trying to listen to what people want and need. Uh, so we have a couple courses that we do. Um, the one that's most frequent is what we call our crash course. It's a seven-week uh, online 25-hour input uh, course where people are able to come together learn asynchronously in certain part at certain points about what it is that are these you know why we're talking about climate change how we talk about climate change talking about environmental justice issues and um, how to discuss various actions and solutions so by the time they come out seven weeks later they have a fully fledged climate story which is just what is it you want to talk about we will help you to craft that story to make sure that it's being brought across in the best way that's going to bring people into the conversation. Um, so we do those uh, typically every about six months in the spring and the fall. And uh, currently, as I mentioned, we're doing one for for Canada coming up, which we're very excited about. We also have free introductory presentations that we do quarterly. Um, so on our website, you can always check on when those are, are going on. And additionally, uh, we are looking into doing some beginner workshops will be a little little longer um, that we'll be able to do uh, with people as well online, um, as opposed to that introductory presentations about an hour long and just kind of gives the who, what, when, where of what we're doing and the why. So thank you for joining us today. I've enjoyed this conversation. Where can our listeners go to learn more about your work, Kate? You can go to our website, which stands for the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation. So that is nnocci.org. Megan, where can our listeners go to learn about more about your work? Yeah, so if you'd like to learn more about the Thompson Earth Systems Institute and how we communicate about Earth systems, you can go to go.ufl.edu backslash T-E-S-I. Thank you. Hannah, where would you like to send people? Come visit me at the St. Louis Zoo. You can also check our website at stlzoo.org. Adam? So the Marine Mammal Center is based in the San Francisco Bay Area and open to the public. So you can come and visit us as well. You can go to marinemammalcenter.org um, and connect with us to learn more about Noki as well, since the Marine Mammal Center is the fiscal sponsor for Noki. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. We welcome your questions and feedback. You can learn more about the Climate Hour at climatehour.net. That's climatehour.net. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.